Well, hi everyone. Uh, sorry I can't be with you tonight. Uh, as you may have heard, I'm in Dallas at a retreat. Um, so hopefully I'm having a good time. I hope uh, we still have a good time here tonight talking about uh, the afterlife. Uh, last week we uh, talked about, we finished up in 1 Corinthians with, with what Paul had to say there about the resurrection and the resurrection body. And so now we're going to continue with his next letter in 2 Corinthians. Um, so we'll be in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, and you should have handouts on your table that kind of show you where we're, we're going to be, at least here at the start. Now, some people think there's been one argument that between uh, the time of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, something's changed with Paul. Uh, and some people even read uh, these passages in, in 2 Corinthians in that kind of Greek Platonic view that we talked about as not being the Christian view, right? The idea that the real you is your immortal soul and that needs to escape your body and float off to the heavens. Um, and so we want to leave all this behind, right? Some people think Paul somehow changed to that in this other letter. And uh, I point that out because if that's the assumption you come to this letter with, that, right, your soul is a real you, your body is bad, then you'll kind of find that here, right? Uh, but instead, I'm going to argue that Paul didn't completely change his mind or his worldview, uh, but he did slightly change his perspective, and it has to do more with what's going on in his life. Now, for one thing, a lot of people have noticed that it seems like early on in his ministry, Paul seemed to believe that he would still be alive when Jesus came back. He would be alive to experience the resurrection. In fact, you even see this uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. So in, in verse 51, we read last week, he said, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed, right? We will not all die implies we, including me, Paul, will be here when we see this happen. Uh, and then also in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, a passage we'll look at later, he talks about, you know, we who are alive at his coming. Right? He seemed to assume that the return of Christ is going to be a pretty, pretty uh, upcoming close thing. Um, and uh, obviously we know 2,000 years later that that wasn't the case. But even in his life, as things started to go in certain ways, Paul seemed to understand that, that might not happen. And so now you see in, in slightly later letters that Paul thinks there's a chance he might die before Jesus returns. Um, and so that's, that's where he's at, I think, here in 2 Corinthians. And you also see that in Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we'll look at that passage later where Paul's in prison. Uh, he doesn't know which he would prefer to, to live or die. Um, and so he's a little more aware of his mortality. And that actually connects a lot with what 2 Corinthians is all about, that so much of this letter is about Paul as the suffering servant. Um, he's gone through a lot of stuff between the time uh, of the last letter he sent them. And so this whole letter, in some ways, is reflecting on the difficulty of earthly life and the difficulty of, of his own ministry. All right, we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 13, but right before that, you have the kind of well-known passage where he talks about, you know, we have this treasure and the treasures of what God has given us in clay jars, right? That God is doing all these things in, in us who are very frail and fragile. And so we're afflicted and we're perplexed and we're persecuted, right? All these things happen to us and we carry around the dying of Jesus in our bodies. Uh, it's, it's, he's, he's seen some rough things. He's gone through some hard things. And in fact, another part of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending his own ministry. 
because it seemed like there was this question that was coming from people in Corinth saying, well, if, if you're Christ's apostle, why are you suffering so much, Paul? Shouldn't your life be a little bit easier or better? And so he's, uh, through all through this letter, showing this is what it means to be an apostle, a servant of Christ, is you're going to connect to the suffering that Christ himself went through. Um, and so if you're not suffering, that actually is a sign you're not uh, a, true, a true apostle. All right, so that's, that's kind of the background of what's going on when Paul writes this letter. So like I said, we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 13 says, just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with Scripture, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So you see, he's making the same sort of move that he made in 1 Corinthians 15 of connecting Jesus' resurrection with our resurrection, right? The one who raised Jesus will also raise us. If God did this for him, God's going to do that for us. That's our hope. Uh, And so the resurrection of Jesus gives us uh, faith. One of the other things he talks about here is is this idea of reunion uh, in verse 14 particularly, right? He'll bring, he'll bring us with you into his presence there. One of the questions, and we'll get to this later on in this series, is the idea of, are we going to see the people we love again, right? And I think that's one of the biggest pastoral concerns that we have uh, when we get to these questions about the afterlife. And, and so this is the kind of passage where it seems to be pointing towards the idea that it's not going to be me and Jesus someday. It's going to be us, right? Uh, he'll bring us with you, right? So we're going to experience this together. Resurrection and reunion go together. Um, all right, well, I'm going to continue on in verse 16. So we do not lose heart, even though our outer nature is wasting away, or our outer person, Our inner person is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. All right, so here this idea of the the outer person and the inner person, or the uh, outer nature, the inner nature, this is where it starts to sound kind of like that Platonic, dualistic idea of uh, the unseen, the inner part is the real you, right? That's your immortal and immaterial soul. And so, right, and the same with the seen and unseen, right? You can see your body, but you can't see your your soul or your spirit. Um, And so you could take that, if you just took this by itself, without all the stuff that we talked about the last couple weeks, to say, right, we don't focus on the body, we focus on the soul, and that's all that really matters. Uh, but I don't think that's what he's saying, right? He's not saying that that inner self is the only real you and your body doesn't matter. And in fact, he's, he's kind of showing how they relate. The external, the bodily struggles that we go through, that Paul was going through, and I know many of you are probably going through right now, that can, in, that can strengthen the, the internal side of us. Right? We know that going through some sort of physical suffering can strengthen our, our hearts or our minds. It can give us more courage. Um, we can grow. We get more character from those sort of things. Um, right? That's, that's kind of what I think he's pointing at here. And we all, we all have seen that to be the case. Uh, 
So when he talks about what is not seen, he's really talking about the timing of things, not the substance, right? When he says what's not seen, he's not talking just about this part of yourself you can't see. He's talking about when you're going to experience it, right? It's not unseen because it's your invisible true self. It's unseen because it's not realized yet, right? He's, he's looking forward. He says he's preparing this for us. And preparing implies something that's going to happen in the future. Um, you know, I think about this with, well, with my kids, right? Who George and Betsy will be when they grow up is unseen. But that's just because it hasn't happened yet, right? So who we will be in the resurrection is unseen. Uh, not because it's only going to be that invisible part of us, but it's because something that it's down the road still. Uh, so if I were going to paraphrase verse 18, uh, I think what he's really saying is we don't focus on how things are now, but on how they will be. How things are is temporary, but what's coming endures. All right. So right, the seen and the unseen, it's, it's not that Platonic view. It's, it's about the timing of what we're going through now in this life and what we'll experience in that life. And so as you get into chapter 5, Paul uses a couple of different metaphors to talk about this. So I'm going to read chapter 5, uh, 1 through 5. It says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed when we have put it on, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. All right, so like I said, there's two metaphors here for the body, uh, of buildings and clothing. And unfortunately, uh, Paul mixes those metaphors, which would lose him points in his English class, uh, or Greek class, I guess it would have been. Uh, so for us to figure out what he's talking about, we kind of have to separate these metaphors a little bit. So you've got a little chart there in your handout that shows what I think he's, he's pointing at. And uh, part of the issue is there's kind of three states in each of these metaphors for the building and for the clothing, but he leaves one out in each. Right? And so our current bodily state, if you're thinking about it as a building, he says it's like an earthly tent, right? Tents are fine if you're camping, but we don't really want to live in a tent full time. And so, uh, or, uh, and then, uh, so I'll just stick with the building metaphor first, right? And so the resurrected bodily state that we're looking forward to is this building that God is going to give us, right? You upgrade from a tent to a mansion. Um, and so to not have a body, a non-bodily state, would basically be like being homeless, right? Now, Paul doesn't say that. But I think that's the implication. Right? And you get that when you move over to the other metaphor, right? where he's talking about clothing. Our currently bo current bodily state is we're kind of dressed in rags or shabby clothing, depending on <laughs> how your body's doing today. And so he says, uh, as in verse 4, what we really want is to be further clothed or fully clothed. Right? That, that God is going to give us um, the best clothes we can imagine. But his point is there in verse 3 and 4 is we don't want to be naked. Right, um, and but that's what he's saying is kind of that that Greek view, right? If your view of things is your soul escaping to heaven, leaving the body behind, he says that's like being homeless or being naked. 
the solution that some of those Corinthians may have wanted still as being Greeks uh, is actually worse than how it is now. Right, so resurrection is that upgrade uh, to our building or to our clothes. And that's what we're looking forward to. Uh, now, one of the, the tricky things here in verse 3, there's actually a, a textual variant. Uh, and I could say a lot about uh, uh, the Greek manuscripts and how all that works for us. Uh, I won't go into that now. That's a later day, thankfully. Um, but in verse 3, it's actually unclear whether he says when we have put it on or when we have taken it off, we won't be found naked. Uh, and that seems like those are very opposite, but it's actually just one letter difference in Greek, and it's, some manuscripts have it one way, some have it the other. Uh, and so, for various reasons, I would say that the better reading is to say when we've put it on or when we've been clothed, not the when we've taken it off, right? Because I think that leans more towards that Greek view. Uh, when we have taken it off, as in this, uh, right? If he's saying when we take off this body, we won't be found naked. Well, to take something off, you are naked, right? That's just how, how it works. Um, but if he's saying, when we have put it on, when we have put on this heavenly dwelling, this, this perfected body that God is preparing for us, then we won't be naked, right? That's what we want. That's what he's saying. We don't want to get rid of all the material stuff and our bodies. We want them to be perfected, which is very much what he said in, in 1 Corinthians, right? So it, if you read it the right way, it's still consistent which uh, I would assume Paul's going to be consistent. Uh, so that's what we want, to be further closed, to have our, our tent upgraded to the heavenly building. Uh, now he also, another way people, I think, misread what he's saying here is you read it as Paul saying, you know, since it's prepared in the heavens, uh, in verse 1, he's talking about when we go to heaven someday, right? Uh, but I don't think that's what he means, right? Is he's talking about this this perfected body, uh, it's worth being prepared, not where it will live. Right? That's what that means, that it's prepared in the heavens. Uh, the best analogy I've heard about this um, comes from N.T. Wright, and he says, it's like if you were having a party and you told people there was champagne that was prepared in the fridge. Um, what that means, you're not going to go and get in the fridge when it's time to enjoy that, that champagne, right? That, that wouldn't work, right? That's where it's being prepared, being chilled, I guess. And so when it's time, you're going to bring it from there to the party, right? And we'll get into that idea more uh, when we look at First Thessalonians. Um, but it's not about where we go, it's about where it's being prepared. Um, so all, the point of all this is, yeah, life in this body is not perfect. Um, I'm sure we could all spend plenty of time talking about that. I'm sure that came up in the prayer request that, that you had earlier tonight. Um, Life in this body is not perfect, but instead of getting rid of that body, God will perfect it. Right? That's been his consistent view, and so we should assume that that's still what he's saying here. So then he gets into, uh, he kind of closes his argument here in uh, 6 through 10. So, he says, we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. 
All right, and here again, if you only took this section out of context, it could be, you could read it as saying something very different. I think, again, here you, you see Paul, he's wrestling with what he's going through uh, in, in his difficult circumstances, in his ministry, in his life. Right? He can be honest that being away uh, from the body would somehow mean to be with the Lord. And the fact, you know, as we live this earthly life here and all the stuff that happens on this earth, and there's some sense in which we are not fully with Christ. Um, there are plenty of senses in which we are, right? As he mentioned at, in verse 5, he's given us the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God uh, living in us. So that's the guarantee that God is going to do what he's preparing us for. But uh, it's just hard, right? In some sense, to, to leave this body behind and just be immaterial would be homeless. And yet, you could also say that it's with Christ, Right, so you see Paul kind of has, he's recognizing this tension here. And, and so I, I think this is kind of a pastoral move. Uh, he understands. He understands this desire to leave this hard life behind and just go be with Jesus. Right? Um, I feel that plenty of times. I'm sure plenty of you have felt that. And, and so Paul, because he probably is also feeling that a little bit, is not just going to say, well, that's stupid. No, he's saying, yeah, no, I get it. We, sometimes we do just want to leave this behind. Um, again, I think this, it's, it's kind of getting to the same thing that he talks about in Philippians chapter 1. So let's, let's look at that passage real quick. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 21. Right? Uh, Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote while he's in prison. And um, their judicial system was very different. And so being in prison might meant that you're about to die. Right? They're just holding you until they uh, execute you. And so Paul really is, is kind of wrestling with this. He didn't have control over it, over what's going to happen to him, but he's thinking about what, what he would prefer. So Philippians 1, 21, he says, For to me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which I prefer. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I'm convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress in joining the faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Right. I read a little more than I thought I would. All right, but what he's wrestling with there is, look, if it were just up to me, yeah, I'd be out of here, and I'd just go be with Jesus in whatever sense uh, that would happen. But if I stay, even though life is hard, I can do more to, to help you grow and benefit you, right? And so dying is gain. You gain for yourself to be with Jesus, but to live is Christ, right? To live is to live out that kind of suffering that defines Christ's ministry and Paul sees, in a lot of ways, defines his own. Um, so yeah, there may be certain things that we would prefer to just leave this all behind, but as we've seen, that's not what it's all about. Uh, the point of all of this is to continue to grow and, and to make a difference in this world and help other people. And, and so in some sense, even though he understands it, he knows that it's, it's a little bit selfish to want to just leave this all behind when there's still good that we can do. Um, also, I would say this is a, to a topic we'll get to later, but it does seem to hint at sort of an interim state between the time of our death and the resurrection when Jesus returns, right? That's, that's a big question we have is what happens then? Uh, and at least there he seems to be hinting that in some sense 
we are with Christ. All right, we'll talk more about that later, though. Uh, so, yes, it would be nice to just leave this all behind and be fully with the Lord, but that doesn't negate that the ultimate goal is uh, our true home in the resurrection, where we have a perfected body and we're with the Lord, right? It's not as if we have to choose between do I live in a body or do I be with Jesus? Uh, the resurrection is you get both, right? You have a perfected body that's not like it is now and you're with the Lord. And so, as, as I mentioned, that's where Paul ends up as well, that what you do matters, right? Whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And so he mentions, right, he talks about judgment. Um, Christians, it seems, are not exempt from judgment. We will all stand before the judgment seat. Um, so, again, judgment's also a later topic. Uh, I know I keep saying we'll talk about that later a lot, but uh, that's kind of the nature of that, right? These, looking at these passages here is setting up a lot of these later conversations. But I know that's another big question, right? What kind of judgment do we, uh, people that are in Christ, go through? But here it seems like that's not something we just get a pass on. All right, so that's, that's Paul's view in 2 Corinthians, right? Still consistent with what he said in 1 Corinthians. He didn't switch to a totally different philosophical viewpoint, but he's in a different place, and so he talks about it in a different way. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is switch to a slightly different side of this and talk about Jesus and his resurrection body, right? One of the big questions, right, you saw this especially in the second half of 1 Corinthians 15 is, well, what's the resurrection body like? Um, Part of the problem is we only have one example, right? And that's Jesus. So if we want to know, we should probably look at him a little bit. So we're going to look at some stories at, at the end of the Gospels and the resurrection. And we'll see that uh, Jesus, in his resurrection, was not a zombie, right? He's not just a body that had died and came back kind of how it was. And he's not a ghost, right? That he just sort of uh, is immaterial now, even though people can see him and interact with him. Um, that the resurrection is, is neither of those things. But uh, he seems to kind of go in both ways, right? So first we'll look at some attributes of Jesus' resurrection body that do seem kind of ghostly or, or spirit-like in the way we usually think of, of a spirit. Uh, for one thing, we're going to see that uh, Jesus seems to be unrecognizable to some people. So first we see this in Luke chapter 24. Uh, this is on the road to Emmaus. You have two uh, disciples that are heading back from Jerusalem after uh, seeing Jesus be killed, and um, they've kind of lost all hope. And so, uh, but Jesus appears to them, right? Uh, and yet, they don't see who he is. They can't tell who he is. Uh, verse Luke 24, starting in verse 15. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went to them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And then going down to verse 30 and 31, right, after he continues on with them, and they're having a meal. When he was at the table with them, he took bread blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Right? So they don't recognize him. Um, and later on, verse 35, they talk about they, they knew who he was. He'd been known to them in the making of the breaking of the bread, uh, which is an interesting Lord's Supper thought, but that's another topic. Right? But they don't recognize him at first, and it's kind of unclear why that's happening, but it seems to be part of uh, his resurrection body. Uh, something similar, I'm going to put my bookmark in Luke 24 because we'll be going back there a little bit. You might want to do the same. Uh, is in John chapter 20. Right? This is John's resurrection account at the empty tomb with Mary. 
Uh, so I'm going to pick up John 20 and verse 14. Uh, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and in Hebrew said, Rabboni, which means teacher. All right, she's distraught over the loss of Jesus and that his body's not there. And she sees Jesus, but she just thinks he's, he's the gardener. And it's not until she calls her by her name uh, that she recognizes him. Um, I always get a little choked up with that story. But again, right, Jesus, his body and the resurrected body is somehow unrecognizable. And then another sort of ghostly attribute, uh, he seems to just appear places or can even walk through walls. So a little later on in chapter 20 of John, verse 19, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Judeans, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. All right, knows it again in verse 26 for Thomas. All right, so even though it's clear the doors were locked, people couldn't get in, he just sort of shows up, right? Not things you think of people being able to do if they have a physical body. Uh, and also you have uh, with Paul in Acts chapter 9, uh, on the road to Damascus, uh, Acts 9 verse 3. Now as he, Paul, Saul, was going along and approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, right? Uh, there it's like with this heavenly light, Jesus just appears, uh, which again is not something most of us can do. So in some ways, Jesus, his resurrected body, seems very unearthly, uh, almost immaterial, the way he can show up and, and people don't recognize him. But on the other hand, there's a lot of things that Jesus does that seem very uh, bodily, very physical, Right, so go back to Luke 24. Uh, we see that he will eat with his disciples. Uh, so picking up where we, we just were, uh, well, it's, it's a little later, uh, 24, verse 41. While in their joy that they were, well, in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate in their presence. Right? So Jesus eats food. And then you have a similar story, uh, we don't need to go read it, in John 21, uh, where he's on the beach and the disciples are fishing and uh, they come ashore and eventually realize it's Jesus again. And he's cooking breakfast for them. And it's implied that Jesus shares that breakfast. And then along with that is uh, the fact that Jesus can be touched. Right? Since we're still in Luke 24, um, let's start in verse 39. Um, look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, right? He kind of assumes, you probably think I'm a spirit or a ghost here, right? So I'm going to prove to you, no, I'm really here. Um, my body was raised um, and resurrected. So you can touch me and see. And then, of course, the, the famous scene in John 20 with with Thomas, right? Thomas missed out when he showed up the first time. And so he says, unless I can see his, the nail marks in his hands and touch him, I'm not going to believe. And so Jesus shows up and lets him do exactly that. Uh, John 
20, verse 27. He said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Right? So it's, it's a body that can be touched. It's a body that can, can eat. Right? So it's, it's still a physical body. And Jesus never loses that. Right? The next scene, uh, we get it in Luke 24, is the ascension, right? where Jesus ascends into heaven. And that, that idea of Jesus ascending into heaven, it's not what I sometimes uh, hear people thinking of as rocket ship, rocket ship Jesus, where he just sort of takes off and goes uh, up into the air into heaven. Because um, I don't know how far you'd have to go. I mean, where is heaven? We'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but when he does that, when he ascends into heaven, it's not like his physical body kind of flops down to the ground, right? As his spirit somehow ascends. The whole resurrected body ascends into heaven. And so even now, Jesus has not lost this perfected body. Uh, Jesus is a fully human being at the heart of the universe. Uh, is how we should think of him now. And so, uh, maybe done a little early, but I want to give you something to think about and, and talk about as, as we close here. Right, we see that when Jesus comes, he still has the nail marks on his hands and the wound in his side. And so we see that the imperishable, perfected, resurrection body of Jesus still has scars. So what does that mean? Right, as we think about our bodies someday in the resurrection, what wounds of ours will be healed and which will not? Right? Whether we're thinking about physical wounds or the other sorts of wounds that we've uh, had inflicted on us. What's essential to who we are? And what would most display the glory of God in us? Right. It's a question that obviously I don't have the answer to, but I think it's one that's worth thinking about. So take a few minutes, talk with the people around you. What do you think it means that Jesus' perfected resurrection body was still wounded? What does that mean for us? God bless y'all.